0: Listening to the Lamp Life Podcast, where we apply the light of the word to all of life. I'm Brendan.
1: It's been so long since I've done this, I've forgotten what I'm supposed to say. Including your name. Oh, yes, Ed. Ah. Yeah. Ed. Yeah, that's right.
0: Of course, you are now out there in the sphere of publishing as E.G. Romine, as we have discussed. It is now. Official,
1: that's right. That's right.
0: What number one? You're on the number one charts in Amazon right now for best selling best selling book
1: in Baptist Christianity. In yes. Baptist Christianity, very niche category, but yeah. yes, go buy its book, everybody. Yes, please, please do so. Uh, buy my book. I can take uh, Brendan out to J and J Coffee Co.
0: Hey, yeah, yeah. You're gonna get your first like. uh check and it's going to be like $10 and yeah. we're going to spend that $10 well
1: yeah, and support a good coffee that's right company that's right if you're local you ought to go to J&J
0: have we talked about your book on here no tell go ahead and tell the kind people what that's about not that they won't already know but you never
1: know yes so I wrote on a 19th century Victorian Baptist preacher named Charles Haddon Spurgeon and he was the biggest nonconformist preacher in the 1800s or the 19th century. And you may be thinking, what's nonconformist? Well, that's essentially any church in England that did not conform to the state church, otherwise known as the Church of England. And um, the Baptist were considered the smallest among the nonconformists. And um, it was just absolutely phenomenal that a young boy preacher from the Finns, as he was called, uh, came to be so popular in London, England, once he took over the New Park Street pulpit in 1854, and would eventually uh, transfer it to become the, or not transfer, but rebuild the building for it to become the Metropolitan Tabernacle in the year 1860. So Spurgeon was a, a fantastic preacher. Everybody knows him for that, if you know of him at all. He's got 63 volumes worth of sermons, uh, they're massive tomes, small print.
0: Actually, more than that, right? Yes. Because you have the lost books that are right. published.
1: Yep, that's right. The, the Lost <coughs> Sermons of Charles Spurgeon adds 10% to the corpus that's already there, the 63% mm-hmm. or the 63 volumes, rather. And also with, with that... comes to knowledge of Spurgeon's earliest preaching sermons Mm -hmm. or preaching ministry, I guess I should say. Because the earlier sermon we have of him in those lost notebooks that are now volumes is starting at the age of 16. Mm -hmm. And he was a young and very good preacher even back then. So a lot of folks know him for his pulpit preaching, and rightly so.
0: What's the uh, title of your book?
1: Yeah, it's The Booming Baritone Bell of England, Mm -hmm. colon, the practice and pedagogy, or the pedagogy and practice of Charles Haddon Spurgeon's open-air preaching. Yeah. So pedagogy, if you don't know that word, it's a fancy $5 word for the art of how to teach. Mm Mm-hmm. And practice is just what it sounds like, the fact that he did it. And just in case anybody doesn't know, open-air preaching is a catch-all term for any type of preaching that happens outside the confines of what would normally be considered the church building. So in a field, in a street, on a college campus, what have you. Mm -hmm. And Spurgeon... (laughs) was a big advocate of not only doing open-air preaching himself, but training his students at his pastor's college to do so. So the bulk of my dissertation analyzes his teaching on how to do open-air preaching, where he has two lectures, the first being uh, his lecture giving a sketch of its history— You can find this in Volume 2, Open Air Preaching, a sketch of its history, where he chronicles from Old Testament times to the time of Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament and the Book of Acts, all the way through church history up until the point of what would have been for him the present-day 19th century. And it's really quite a pithy um, summary, if you will, of open-air preaching up through the 19th century. And he even says in that lecture, I wish somebody would compile uh, a complete source of the history of open-air preaching, how God used it in the medieval church, how God used it in the the early church, the medieval church, the pre-Reformation church, and the reformational church, all the way up to what would have been his present day it'd be even larger now. Cause Has anyone uh, done that? No. Yeah. So one of the things that I did, um, when you write a dissertation, a PhD dissertation, they always want you to put a section in your work for further opportunities for scholarship. And so I said, here's a direct quote from Spurgeon saying, we need this. Somebody who has a lot of time on their hands, go out and do this. And be a wonderful contribution to the disciplines of evangelism, to the disciplines of preaching, and to the disciplines of church history. So it'd be like getting a PhD in all three of those fields. Yeah. So so that that's essentially what it was with the pedagogy of it, with the practice of it. There are three, just three sermons recorded Within the first six volumes of the big 63 volume set, I could not find any more. It doesn't mean that they're there, it just means that I might have overlooked them. So, in those three sermons, I analyzed his preaching and, in particular, his evangelistic appeals and gospel appeals and compared the fervency of that to. Um, to five pulpit sermons that were instrumental in his life. And in so doing, I uh, showed the, the fervency of his pulpit preaching came from his time as an open-air preacher. So that's basically it.
0: Yeah. So,
1: and I have one of the coolest endorsers in my book as well. Yeah, mm. I bet the listeners know who that is. I bet
0: they don't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it was, uh, I I enjoyed reading it. Um, you know, I I'm I am not a guy who is going to say that the only way that you can do evangelism or should is open air preaching. I'm not even a guy personally. Mm-hmm. Even you and I would would differ a little bit on on uh, what the kind of primary function. Of uh, of what you ought to give your time to and evangelism ought to be, mm-hmm. um, I think you would do a lot more open air preaching than I would in evangelism. And I think it's fine. I think the Lord uses both mm-hmm. and uh, both. Well, I say both as if there's only two. I think there's all sorts of types of evangelism. The question for me is: Are you proclaiming the gospel and trusting mm-hmm. that the gospel is the power to save? Um, the medium of that isn't as important to me. But,, uh, what I enjoyed from the book was seeing Spurgeon's evangelistic zeal, yeah, and uh, and to see how that came through in the way that he viewed open air preaching. And I think that I could I could have you know similar a similar sense of of uh, appreciation for open air preaching, mm-hmm. as Spurgeon does there, uh, in the sense of of uh, the Christian ought to have a heart for wanting to hear. All hear the gospel or see all hear the gospel mm-hmm. uh, proclaimed, and open air preaching is certainly a medium through mm-hmm. which that can and often does occur. So, yeah, um, yeah, it was a it was a fun read and just encouraging. Really, just good scholarship, well written, and uh, one of my favorite parts was even just the uh, the chapter you did on uh, the. Christ-centered hermeneutics of yes. uh, Spurgeon, and just seeing how he preached Jesus from every book of the Bible mm. that we have record of him preaching. Anyways, I guess yes. So
1: yep, that's right. Anyway, that's right. It's and good that stuff. tells you something too uh, for those of you that that might listen to this, and maybe you preach, or maybe you've thought about preaching. Spurgeon didn't preach the entire Bible. God greatly used him. Yep. So and don't feel like you have to get through the entire book. <laughs>
0: few few people do. Yeah. So all right. Well cool. That's uh that's exciting stuff. Um if you wanna buy that book, I know you can find it on Amazon. Is there any other um, places where you can't uh, find publisher's
1: it? Publisher's website, Whiffenstock. Yeah.
0: stock. So wh- say say what that is. Yeah. Wh- yeah. Whippin' stock or whiffin stock? Whiff. Whiff.
1: Like an like an F. Yeah, yeah, we just probably turn some listeners off. <laughs> Why are y'all in my ear?
0: Yeah, but yeah,
1: yeah. So, so, but uh, that's the publisher. It's it's a weird name, I know, but it's two people's last names. I think they're both named John. I c- could be wrong on that. But, yep. But it's a Christian academic publisher.
0: Yep. Cool. The booming baritone bell of England. Pick nice cover too. Yeah.
1: Get after no, it. I was scared to death and it looked ugly. Yeah. Yeah. It's got the classic uh
0: picture of Spurgeon on it, you know. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Well let's get into the content here. Um we just went on for a solid twelve minutes on that, but no you know, worries. It's all good. It's all good. You know? It's been a while since we've done this. So that's right. Some life updates to to get in there. Uh, we're going to be talking about the transmission and translation of scripture today. And uh, basically, here's here's what that means. Sitting in front of me and you over there is an English Bible. Correct. How in the world do we get to the English Bible? And the question of how we get there is important because we tell people that they can trust this thing. Right, right, and so the the transmission of the scripture is important. So we're going to talk about how we got our Bibles. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to talk about a field of study that helps us get our Bibles called textual criticism. We're going to talk about canonization. Why is it that we have certain books in the Bible and other books in the Bible? And then we will talk about the process of translation of the Bible. So that's uh, that's where we're headed today. And I want to start us out just by reading a a quote here from Norman Geisler and William Nix, who have written a book on this that was published years ago. And it's a book that I've seen a lot of even modern authors continue to draw from and reference Mm -hmm. when it comes to this issue of transmission. And so let me read this, and then I'm going to kick it over to you to fill us in on just a little bit of what this process of transmission has looked like. So, Geisler and Nick's right. Between the autograph, so we're going to need you to fill us in on what that is. Between the autograph and the modern Bible extends an important link in the overall chain from God to us, known as transmission. It provides a positive answer to the question, do Bible scholars today possess an accurate copy of the autographs? Obviously, the authenticity and authority of the Bible cannot be established unless it be known that the present copies have integrity. In support of the integrity of the text, an overwhelming number of ancient documents may be presented. For the New Testament, beginning with the 2nd century ancient versions and manuscript fragments and continuing with abundant quotations of the fathers, the church fathers, and thousands of manuscript copies, From that time to the modern versions of the Bible, there was virtually an unbroken line of testimony. Furthermore, there are not only countless manuscripts to support the integrity of the Bible, including the Old Testament since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but a study of the procedures of preparation and preservation of the biblical manuscript copies reveals the fidelity of the transmission process itself. In fact, it may be concluded that no major document from antiquity comes into the modern world with such evidence of its integrity as does the Bible. Amen. All right. So, Ed, help us understand a little bit of just a a brief overview starting out of how we get from the text to what we have in front of us right now. And then we'll break down some of those elements piece by piece.
1: Well, the first thing that they didn't really define in that particular paragraph is the definition of autograph. Mm -hmm. Here's what they don't mean. They don't mean you're John Hancock. They they don't mean your signature. You know, if if somebody comes up to me with, with my book and they say, uh, Dr. Romine, can I have your autograph? You know, i am um, um, same. yeah, sure. Yep. That's not what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. So it's not people's signatures. What it is, though, is a document, the original document that contains the original pinned words of the authors. Yeah. And I'll just say, from the outset, this is where this discipline of textual criticism comes in. As of, what's today's date, the 28th, 29th? 29th. 29th. As of June 29th, 2023, no original autographs have been discovered. Mm -hmm. And so with that said, I think it's important to understand in this discipline of which I'm about to speak with textual criticism we are trying to be honest with what we do have we do not have the original documents so so what we do have and what they alluded to is copies of documents Mm -hmm. uh, for both the Old and New Testaments and what I want to focus on is, is the New Testament because there there is uh, just uh, thousands of manuscript evidences copies from scribes mm-hmm. where people wanted to take the original copy it then that copy would get a copy then both those copies would be copied and on and on and on it goes mm-hmm. and something so, like
0: 6000 right manuscripts and fragments right Right. of the New Testament, something like 30,000 of the Old Testament.
1: Right. So nobody, even in uh, liberal scholarship, debates the authenticity of the Old Testament manuscripts. Mm-hmm. But in New Testament critical studies, there, there's a lot of debate. And and you've got to understand, when we talk about fragments, we literally mean fragments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, may, maybe we only have some copies that only have like a portion of, oh, I don't know, John 1, mm-hmm. let's say, for instance. But we compare that with what we do have by by dating, and we see how well everything matches up. And generally, the rule is the later the date is, the less authentic it's going to be. Mm-hmm. So... And what's so cool and what they alluded to is that you take a <coughs> Greek play like a Homer, for example, um, we have a lot less manuscript evidence for, for Homer or for Odyssey or for the Iliad, whatever. But in scholarship, the authenticity of those Greek documents are not debated, but yet our our textual criticism for them is a lot farther off date-wise than our New Testament documents are.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and and I guess what I want to do starting out is we'll we'll get into the weeds of textual criticism here in a little bit, but just generally, um, we'll come back to that because I want to get to that. But generally... What we're talking about when we talk about transmission is that our Bibles started from God speaking through His divine speech yes. to human authors who mm-hmm. wrote down that divine speech. And whatever those human authors completed, yes, w- that original full manuscript is what we refer to as right. the autograph. Right. And so that autograph was the perfect divine speech of God And so when we refer to inerrancy, as you've already heard us talk about, you can go back and listen to inerrancy. When we refer to inerrancy, what we're talking about is that God perfectly conveyed the truth about who he is, what he Mm. wanted to reveal about himself and about us and about this world and and all the rest. He revealed that perfectly Mm. in the uh, manuscripts that he Mm. gave to to his people. And those manuscripts, we would say, have been preserved such that the truth that God gave to his people has always remained without error. Right, Um, And so we can still go to the Bibles that we have today and find that same truth there in the text. Right. But the, the text that originally was there, those autographs, as you've mentioned, has been lost, or, or who knows what happened to them, right? But we have mm-hmm. copies of copies of copies of copies of right. copies. And so textual criticism is the process of getting those um, copies uh, compiled together so that we can get through the science of textual criticism mm-hmm. really accurate conveyings of what that original autograph was. Right. And so there's a sense in which th- we still have the autographs. We just mm-hmm. have them through the copies and not through having the actual <laughs> autograph itself, Right, if that makes sense. And then we also have uh, from, from that the process that the church has gone through of canonization. Right. And that canonization, of course, was the whittling down of what texts really are divine speech, mm-hmm. what books really are divine speech, what books are for God's people right. to hold on to and read as that which w- which has been given to us directly from God mm-hmm. so that we can know Him and understand his, his work in the world. Right, And then the translation process is taking what we have as our canon and taking what has been put into Greek and Hebrew and and Aramaic, um, and taking taking all the stuff that's been done in the textual criticism process, uh, you know. So so, for just just to maybe break this down briefly, um, when we learn Greek and Hebrew, mm-hmm. we get a. I mean, at least I had to go get a, uh, a Greek Bible. Right. right, a Greek yep. New Testament.
1: Yeah, twenty seven. That's
0: right. I had to go get yep. an Old Testament, uh, Hebrew Bible. Right, yep. and uh, what we come to find is that the that's not the autograph. <laughs> you know, right. the, just because I know the Greek, that doesn't mean that I have the autograph yet. Right. There's been a lot of work that's been done through textual criticism to make that Greek Bible. But then we take that Greek Bible and we translate it into English, right? And that's how we get our English copies. And that's what right. we want to show is that through this whole process, divine speech is not being lost, right? We right. we still can discern the truths of God, the words of God, mm-hmm. through this. So um, that's just a brief overview of what we're getting at today yes. as a whole. And then we do want to whittle down a little bit, which you've already said a lot of really helpful Mm -hmm. stuff on on textual criticism. But the argument that you're going to get consistently from atheists and critics, agnostics, things like that, um, is often going to be on this point where Mm. they want to discredit the Bible. They want to cause you to lose your trust in the Bible. And we think that that often is a cheap way of trying to undercut what we all know to be true about textual Mm -hmm. criticism. If you'll just look into it yourself. Right. And one of the biggest opponents of, uh, the, the true church today is a a scholar named Bart Ehrman. And of course he's made his life out of attacking the Bible and trying to get people to lose trust in the Bible. But, um, of course, we, we think that it's not too difficult to deal with airmen if you understand how textual criticism works. Mm-hmm. So um, now that we've got that overview, finish filling out for us just what what the process of textual criticism looks like right. functionally.
1: Right. So, so what happens with the transmission of the scriptures is you've got these scribes who would copy down uh what they had, and then and then another scribe would copy that down and copy that down. think of it like a spider just uh, multiplying. Mm-hmm. And the reason why they would do that is so that other Christians and churches could have copies of the scriptures.. Yeah. And in so doing, What's naturally going to happen? Errors. And by the way, if you take a (laughs) copy of your Greek New Testament, if you have one, uh, you're going to notice nice capital letters. You're going to notice versifications still, verse numbers. You're going to notice chapter numbers. You're going to notice lowercase Greek letters Mm -hmm. after the start of Every sentence, the, the 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 fragments and the papyri are not like that. They're all cap letters. Yep. And so, if you've ever seen, well, I mean, you can get on the Google and see a picture <laughs> of uh, what I do.
0: The you always put a the when you're talking about mm. something technology. Yes. The Facebook, are. the Instagram, the Google. Yeah. The, the Twitter.
1: The interns (laughs) that we have, the lovable interns, have reminded me of that every time I do it. Um, Got to get that
0: article in there.
1: um, Well, if you get on Google, um, you can find um, pictures. And I'm not the world's best at reading Greek. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I can... Figure most things out unless it's Hebrews and I struggle because well that's different in style and all that very sophisticated. But I mean I, I I'm not sure I could make heads or tails of of a lot of these papyri because I I'm not used to looking at that Greek with the, with with the capital letters everywhere, there's no spacing in between the words or letters and all runs together. So if you understand that, you can understand how easy it is for copyist errors to get into copies of the autographs. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I really Appreciate about John Frame and his chapter on the transmission of scriptures. He makes a distinction between the autographs themselves and then the autographic text, mm-hmm. which is the the actual wording, the message that is going forth. And he makes the example of, you know, I'm not getting this exactly, but. If I t- type out a recipe on my computer and then I print out copies, the copies are not exactly what I typed out on the digital media, mm-hmm. but it still represents the same thing. Yeah. And he, he he eventually goes on to say, which I thought was worth the price of the chapter, that divine speech... Can overcome any human speech, yeah God, after all was the was the cause behind the tower of Babel, yep, and God was also the cause of the miracle in Acts chapter two, which is a kind of an undoing or so if you will, of the curse of Babel, yeah, and so God can, with his divine speech and divine prerogative, overcome the human. Limitations of of speech. So so therefore, if I if I read uh, you know the very first verse in Psalms two, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And then I go read it in Spanish, or you know go go uh, hick through the Hebrew, try to read that. Mm-hmm. Essentially. The, the The message of that question remains the same because it's still God's inspired word mm-hmm. and and it's his divine speech coming through,
0: yeah, yeah, so one of the things that's going to be said by critics is yeah. there's there's a hopeless number of errors uh thousands upon thousands upon thousands of errors in the text, and we know this because we can compare. The copies to one another and yeah. find discrepancies between the copies, um, variants as they're called, and so you can't trust your Bibles. Like there's no way that this is still even close to. Yeah. The autograph because it's it's copied by humans and every human makes a copy. You know yeah. they'll say, well, "Why don't you go try to write down the Book of Matthew yourself and then go see how perfect you got it? You're going to make errors. You're going to be fatigued, and uh, mm-hmm. and how much more in different uh, ancient contexts? You know that 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 could have occurred. So, yeah. um, well, I mean, what's the what's the Christian response to that?
1: Yeah. Well, the Christian response to that first is is um as the scriptures say that men were carried along by the Spirit of God in order to write what they wrote. Um, but secondly, God also uses, well, not but, secondly, and secondly, God also uses human means and human instruments to write down His words. And in using fallible creatures it's very possible that in their humanity they wrote down grammatical errors, and that's the large majority of the so-called uh, problems with, with, with the scriptures is just uh, little words that don't affect theology, uh, words in, in the Greek text and the Hebrew text that could easily be misconstrued, like John Frame uses the uh, example in the Hebrew scriptures of um, of Solomon's horse stalls, where in, in Chronicles it says 40,000, and in Kings it says 4,000. And if you look at the Hebrew, those, those numbers are very, very similar. It's very easy to See where somebody can make a mistake in a small little manuscript like that. And yeah. then also
0: And so the argument, just to be clear, is that the the that mistake was made in the copying correct. of the text. Correct. Right? In the copying, yes. Right. Right. So so the big I think picture or the big argument is if you go and look at all of these different variants, first mm-hmm. off it's hard to put a percentage on exactly uh, how much of the Bible is disputed, disputed because of these variants. Mm. But people who have sought to give a number to it or a percentage would say that 97 to 99 or even above 99% of your Bible is undisputed in terms of the copies that we have, give us an undeniable reason for confidence. Right. That what we have there is essentially what was in the autograph, right? Um, because we have so many manuscripts that when you when you look at all of them and compare them, you can narrow it down to see the particular places where uh, where the error actually occurred, right? Um, and and that makes you realize, okay, well this is the aired copy, and then this is the correct copy, right? You know, it's it's like if you have ten copies that say one one thing and two copies that say another, then generally speaking, you know which copies are aired. Now, there can be some twisting in that, right? Because you do have a couple of circumstances where the majority of the text is uh, saying one, or the majority of the manuscripts that we have say one thing, but the oldest manuscripts we have say another thing. Um, So... You That's why I think did. of the ending of uh, Mark, I believe, yep. is one of those examples where in the ending of Mark, if you don't know this, it's mm-hmm. disputed because the majority of the texts, uh, if I'm getting this right, you can correct me because I'm just shooting from the hip a little bit on this from memory, yep. but the majority of the manuscripts for the ending of Mark do not have what's included there. Right. But the two oldest manuscripts that we have do have what's included in most of our copies. And so then the person has to make the decision, of course, the person who's putting together uh, an English Bible, do we include this or not? Right. Um, is the evidence there? And here's the thing. There's really only two places in the Bible where we're we're a little uncertain about it. And one of those is the ending of Mark, and one of those is the section in John 8 right. of the woman who's caught in adultery.
1: Yeah, I'm just going to... And- Say, you know, that's why, the, going back to what you said about the um, the old manuscripts being so valuable, that's why we'll, when we discovered the, the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 40s and 50s, that was phenomenal.
0: Yeah, because it gave us older manuscripts. Right. Um, that we found... Through finding those older manuscripts that, well, one, it helps us to get more accurate um, uh, information on what we should be including in our current versions of the Greek and Hebrew. But it also affirmed that what we have is actually very accurate already, yeah. right? right? So. Yeah, so I think that any, any uh, atheist who want to make this argument of, oh, you know, it's hopelessly lost. You can't trust any of it because of the copies, and there's like, you know, 60,000 variants or whatever. Well, most of the variants that we have uh, are very, very minor variances right. that don't make any difference in the theology that's in the text. Right. Whatsoever. Yep. and uh, and that's even the case with uh, like John 8 you know right. John 8 yeah maybe it's not supposed to be in our Bibles but whether or not it's in our Bibles makes no difference on the theology of the Book of John right because the story is consistent with what you would expect of Jesus. And so it doesn't mm-hmm. threaten the divine speech that we don't know with absolute certainty on those two particular instances, whether or not this ought to be included in the Bible itself in the right. canon. Right. Um, so all that to say, there's no reason for Christians to be threatened by these sorts of cheap arguments that people make. I think of one argument that Bart Ehrman likes to make. He's, he, he likes to try to say that some of the variants we have do absolutely change the theology of the different books. And so one of the variants that we have is in verse one of Mark one, where it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So some of the manuscripts that we have omit the son of God. Mm -hmm. And so Bart Ehrman will go on in his, you know, Bart Ehrman way, you know, how can we know then, you know, that, that, uh, that, Jesus is the Son of God. Mark, Mark, we don't even know if he says it, you know, in his very, like, passionate way, and he, mm-hmm. he tries to get you all worked up. Like, you know, if Jesus is, if, if the Son of God is not included in Mark 1, then we have no reason to have confidence that Mark is trying to tell us that Jesus is the Son of God, you know? And mm-hmm. so he'll pull, point out these little random variants and try to make an argument that it totally affects the theology of the book of Mark. But you know what he never talks about? He never talks about the fact that just a few verses later, an undisputed verse in the book of Mark in, uh, in chapter 1 is the baptism of Jesus. It's totally undisputed. And in the okay. baptism of Jesus, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, What? You are my beloved son. Amen. With Damn. you I am well pleased. So, you know, that this is just a common example of the kind of thing that Bart Ehrman will do where he'll cherry pick a a variant and he'll try to blow it up into this big thing. It's like, okay, well even if we're not absolutely certain on verse 1, the theology in the book of Mark that Jesus is the son of God runs through the entire book in places that are undisputed, right. that are not considered to be threatened by any variant. Right. And so whether or not verse 1 does indeed say that does not threaten the theology of the book as a whole at all, even though that Bart Ehrman wants to try to make it seem like it does. Right.
1: And if I may say not to go off on too much of a tangent, but the same type of logic is used by rabid KJV-onlyist when they try to claim that... that the versions that are based off of a different text critical edition of Scripture are mutilating the theology of the blood of Christ, mm-hmm. for example. They'll po- point to where like um, uh, it doesn't say so-and-so about the blood of Jesus, or, or they'll say First John 5, 5, 7 is taken out, so... So, you know, the new Bible translations deny the Trinity. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, think, things of that nature. It's the same type of logic for, for those folks where they cherry-pick variants, textual variants that they don't understand the science and discipline behind and then they go off on a rabbit trail and make that their selling point. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, I really think, that uh, they use a really technical term. That's just a bunch of hogwash, really.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: And when when it comes to the end of the day, one of the things that gives me a lot of confidence is Jesus himself put stock in a translation of the Old Testament uh, for... His authority, and for the life and teaching of that he practiced and his apostles. Yeah, uh, would you mind telling our listeners what that translation was?
0: You talking about the Septuagint? Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
1: the Septuagintal writings, mm-hmm. the, the Greek translation of the Old, old Testament. And I think Frame makes a great point arg- arguing this, and is that they considered their version of the inspired scriptures binding, authoritative, sufficient, all the big attributes of scripture we've talked about in previous episodes. It seemed as though those things applied to the Greek translation of the Septuagint. Mm -hmm. And Jesus didn't say, have you not read... Barahim, uh, he said, uh, have you not read you know, Hong uh, Argos? You know, he quoted Greek to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Greek Septuagint, not the Hebrew. Uh, you know, just a proven example.
0: Yeah. Yep. So, maybe to wrap this up, I think we're going to have to handle canonization yeah, at a different time because yep. we're, we're already out of time here, but Um, Just know this, dear listener, when we're talking about the transmission of the Bible, the fundamental question that we are asking is, has the divine speech been preserved? Yes. Has God's word been preserved for us, the church, today? Can we trust that God, in how he has revealed himself to his people through the authors, can we trust that that revelation has been faithfully passed down for the people of God today? And the answer is, without a doubt, yes. Because if you do this process of textual criticism, what you come to find, and it's been explained this way, I think, helpfully, is not that we are lacking in anything. It's not that we're missing any of the divine Mm. speech. What the textual criticism reveals, if anything is if you had a 500-piece puzzle, we have 502 pieces. That's and right. so all of the divine speech is there. We have more than what the divine speech is. And so the process of textual criticism is more so determining what's not supposed to be in it versus whether or not the speech itself has been preserved for us. right? And so, you know, and and again, the variants, relatively speaking, are very minor, and they're never theologically significant. Mm -hmm. And so the divine speech is there. What God has said in the scriptures, as you even have it and can read it in your English Bibles, is what God has conveyed about himself to us through these original authors, and you can have confidence in that, yes?
1: Amen, Yes. And if you cannot have confidence in your English Bibles, you have no reason to come to First Baptist Provo or any other Bible-believing church and listening to a preacher preach if you can't even trust the Bible that they say is holy.
0: Yep. Just quickly, um, good resources that you could look at if you're curious to consider this more. One video research that comes to mind for me is look up the debate on this issue between James White and Bart Ehrman. I think you'll find that very encouraging. Mm -hmm. Bart Ehrman, again, is undoubtedly the leader in this field of study on the atheistic agnostic side. And James White, I don't think would even consider himself to be one of the leaders, but he is a very well-studied Man, when it comes to this issue of textual criticism, Especially and a very faithful, this issue. yes, and very faithful as an apologist, and uh, James White does a tremendous job in that debate mm-hmm. of uh, defending the truths that we are that we are declaring even right now today, and so I think you'll be encouraged if you go and listen to that and mm-hmm. seeing how a Christian has nothing to fear when it comes to even the best atheists and agnostics that are out there and the arguments that they can put forward.
1: And what was that resource that you read from at the very beginning?
0: Yeah, so that is a book by uh, Geisler and Nix. And, uh, it's a general introduction to the Bible is what that particular quote comes from. Yep. And that's a 1991 book, a couple of recent books that are helpful because the, the field of textual criticism is always changing as we find more manuscripts. Yeah. Our, our Bibles are actually getting more accurate as we find more manuscripts and have computer technology to even help us compare and contrast all the various copies. But, um, but, uh, accurate in terms of the yes. variance being right you know dealt yeah, with more faithfully yeah, I, not not more accurate in terms of we're finding out divine <laughs> speech we didn't have before right right that's I, let's I just be gonna, clear there yeah
1: i was going to say you can Trust if you love your King James, you can trust it just as much as an English standard. Yep. So.
0: But uh, a couple of books that are newer. One is Scribes and Scripture. That's a really good book. Yeah. Gurry and... Uh, oh, I'm blanking Peter on Peter Gurry? Yeah, Peter Gurry and uh, who's the other author on that one? Uh, we'll put it in the show notes. Yes, I, I am blanking on the name of the other author on that one. And then uh, another book is Myths and Mistakes in and uh, textual criticism. Mm-hmm. That's another modern one, and so we'll put a link to that one as well. That'll mm-hmm. that'll be a big help to you. You got anything else to say on that? John Frame's book was really helpful again. Yeah, Doctrine John and Word Frame of
1: God. was good. Um, Canon Revisited, Michael Kruger's yeah. really
0: good. We'll get, That one will be more relevant, because yeah, we'll, we'll do a whole time, episode yeah. on canonization. Yep, I think that so. that'll be appropriate, especially given our particular context. So. Yes. All right. Well, that's all we got for you today. We yeah. appreciate you all listening. Yeah, please like, subscribe, share the show if you're finding yeah. it helpful.
1: Pray for our interns. They need it. That's they're right. Stuck. We got they're some summer with, interns with us. Yeah, they're stuck with me. Yeah, so. it's,
0: it's good stuff. So, All right. Thanks for listening. Have and a good Brendan one. Brendan on Facebook. We'll see you all next time.